0: Now on to the podcast. Next up on the ABCA podcast is Dr. Matt White. Dr. White is an orthopedic surgeon in Cedar Rapids, specializing in elbows and shoulders. He did his undergrad work at Notre Dame, went to medical school at Indiana University, and finished his residency at Wisconsin. After his residency, he went to Birmingham for his fellowship at the American Sports Medicine Institute, working with some of the world's best surgeons, including Dr. James Andrews. Dr. White and I have a relationship that goes back to my coaching days at the University of Iowa. I attribute my conversations with him over the last 16 years as to why I was able to keep players healthy. He was always right on with any diagnosis of players that I sent to see him. He and I are both passionate about arm health. We cover a lot of ground in this episode on arm surgery and arm health. My hope is that this is a great resource for parents, players and coaches that are dealing with or will deal with arm issues. I trust Dr. White as much or more than anyone on this topic, which is why I'm excited to have him on for this episode. Let's welcome Dr. Matt White to the podcast. Friendly reminder that our virtual clinic video is released to all members today, May 24th. So if you're thinking about becoming a member or haven't renewed yet, today is a great date to do that at abca.org or on the MyABCA app. You can also call the office at 336 821 The ABC staff is proud of how the virtual clinic turned out, and we're pleased to be able to share the videos with everyone today. Now on to the podcast. Here with Dr. Matt White, orthopedic in Cedar Rapids. uh, I think specialized in elbows and shoulders, an undergrad at Notre Dame, IU Medical School, residency at Wisconsin, and fellowship with Dr. James Andrews at the American Sports Medicine Institute, We've been friends since my time in Iowa City, and then you were kind of my de facto surgeon uh, when we had players that needed to be looked at. We appreciate it. Thanks.
1: Yeah, happy to be here, Coach B. Good to see you. Uh, even on video is, is better than nothing, right?
0: Yes. Yeah, and we haven't gotten around to writing our book yet, but this will have to do until we start to, to do our youth parents and, and players book. Absolutely. Hey, take us through your path a little bit. I know I just touched on it, but especially with your time with Dr. Andrews, um, at the Institute.
1: Sure. So, um, obviously I went to, I went to undergrad, uh, at Notre Dame, as you said, I was a student trainer when I was there. So that was kind of my first, uh, kind of exposure to uh, a sports medicine experience. So I was with the football team at that time. That was, that was really good, uh, medical school, uh, at IU and then residency at Wisconsin. um, and had some good mentors at Wisconsin, uh, Jeff Baer, Ben Graff, folks like that. Um, and then from there, went to Birmingham um, uh, to work with Dr. Andrews and uh, his team for my last year of training and fellowship. And uh, residency for orthopedics is five years long. So that's basically your generalized orthopedic training. And then fellowship, uh, for those that may not see that term very much, is more of a specialized training in a in a field of interest, and and so for me that was sports medicine. Um, and at the time, I I felt strongly uh, that, that that was the place to be, um, and so uh, went there for uh, a year fellowship with Dr. Andrews, um, and then also the the other uh, mentors I had there, including Wild Kane, who's the uh, team doctor for Alabama, Jeff Dugas, who is uh, will probably come up a little bit later in this talk as well. Um, He's uh, the head uh, physician at Troy, and then interestingly enough, also with the WWE, uh, and then Benton Emblem is uh, one of the team physicians at uh, Auburn, and having previously uh, been with Alabama too, but uh, it was really there that I got um, the the greatest exposure to sports medicine because it was just an everyday thing, so every day in clinic, and every day in the OR, uh, the bulk of what we were dealing with were sports injuries, and so um, obviously, we're trying to learn the the technical aspects of things, uh, but also indications. Um, and so you, you can't really go wrong with uh, being around that group of guys, particularly Dr. Andrews with his experience, um, you know, apropos to this, uh, this conversation in baseball. I mean, we'd be there and, you know, there'd be, obviously, we can't talk about specific uh, individuals, but there'd be guys flying in from all over the country uh, to be evaluated um, and uh, and to, you know, have opinions uh, rendered by Dr. Andrews as to what may be going on or uh, sometimes even just second opinions um, of just kind of reassuring that, yeah, the the folks that they had previously talked to were, were in the right and uh, and moving in the right direction. So it was it was exciting because you got to see kind of these big name players and, you know, you, you see them in vulnerable mo- uh, moments when they're they're struggling with injuries and they're trying to figure out what to do. Um, but probably the coolest thing that, you know, I didn't probably have a good handle for when I was really interested in going down there is that, uh, Dr. Andrews and, and that crew, including Drs. Kane and, uh, Dugas and Edmund, they see, uh, youth athletes. They see high school athletes. They're seeing college guys. They're seeing top flight college guys all the way down to smaller school college guys. They're, they're seeing, uh, everyone in between. I mean, we, they would see the, the, uh, weekend warriors too. I mean, it's, it's kind of the, the lifeblood down there is doing sports med. And so you you got a really broad view of, of all those types of injuries and and how to manage them. So it was was a a very formative time for me to be sure.
0: You brought up second opinions and that's in one of my questions. I mean, when is it okay to, to reach out for a second opinion? Uh,
1: Personally, I think that a second opinion is, is never a problem. Um, I'll tell you that when I was early in my practice, you, you want to convey confidence and that you, I mean, you're spot on, you've got the training, you know, you know what you're talking about, but at the same time, you know, most second opinions don't, don't come because that person is distrusting of you or dismissive of you. It's because, like I said, they're in a vulnerable position. They're, they're worried about something. They're worried about, you know, is this, am I going to be okay? Um, And even outside of sports medicine, it becomes a scenario where people, people have, are going through their own things. And and so sometimes, you know, having another, another set of thoughts on it uh, is really helpful. Um, And so you kind of learn over time that you got to let that kind of stuff go. And if if somebody needs to seek a, a second opinion to uh, assure themselves, or to feel confident about the route that they're taking. Um, that's really important. Um, you know, in particular to to Dr. Andrews, a lot of those guys that that were given first opinions were, I mean, top flight names that you'll see um, if you're if you're going and like particularly in the baseball world, you'll see guys like Neil Eltrash, who's uh, with the Dodgers, Chris Ahmad, who's in New York, and is is very well known throughout the baseball community uh, guys like that. And obviously those guys are outstanding. Um, and sometimes it's, you know, uh, you know, the pro- particularly at the professional level, it can be an agent that's asking for a second opinion, but uh, a lot of times, uh, you know, Dr. Andrews would be, uh, you know, the second opinion would a lot of times be they're spot on. I know these guys, they do, they do great work. And, um, and, and that, I think that helps with the collegiality and in, in the orthopedic field, um, uh, Dr. Andrews is kind of a senior statesman who's been there for, been doing it a long time. He's very protective of those guys and, 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 you know, reiterating that they're doing a good job and they know what they're talking about. Um, and so sometimes that's, you know, that that's what it comes down to is just reassuring patients that, uh, it's, it's a good thing. Now, obviously sometimes there are instances too, where there may be disagreements on things. Uh, but I think the biggest thing is, you know, people coming at it from, uh, uh, a reasonable platform, and one of one of Dr. Andrew's uh, biggest concepts and one of his rules was that you you never undermined another physician. You did you never talked bad about that person. If they had a difference of opinion, that's what it was. It wasn't that that person was doing something wrong or with malintent or something like that. And I think that that also um, that also gave some of those other surgeons the confidence to say, Hey, listen, that's fine. You, you go see go see Dr. Andrews and, and we're happy to play a role uh, in whatever, uh, whatever that may be. And honestly, I'll tell you that now, now a lot of those guys uh, are, are the go-tos for, for their areas. I mean, like I said, guys like uh, Dr. Eltrosh and, you know, Ahmad, those guys are, you know, those guys are the uh, the tertiary referral guys a lot of the times now. Um, and, and that's, you know, built off them, continue to do great work. So
0: you talked about differences. What what would maybe be some of the diagnostic differences or maybe disagreements in what someone sees as opposed to what somebody else sees?
1: Um, I think that, you know, particularly, you know, one of the things that we see a fair amount uh, in baseball, you know, and I'm sure we'll, we'll touch on this a number of times, is UCL is, is, is kind of a hot-button uh, topic, particularly in the baseball world. Um, and if you, you know – when you first start looking at these things, you kind of think of it as a very black and white sort of scenario where, uh, you know, this, this player has got a UCL injury. Um, well, there's a broad, broad spectrum about what a UCL injury is. I mean, anybody that's a, anybody that's an orthopedic surgeon or a sports medicine surgeon for that matter, if you, if you see a UCL on an MRI that's blown apart, there's not a lot of conversation about that. Um, just like if you get an MRI and the, and the UCL looks normal, that, that's not a real big talking point, but there's a huge, huge gap between that of partial thickness tears or, uh, irregular strains and things like that. And, you know, much like art is it's beauties in the eye of the beholder. And so somebody may say, well, I, you know, I think that's a, that's a, a partial tear that in my experience is problematic and needs to be addressed sooner rather than later Um, but somebody else may say, Hey, listen, we see those all the time. And and honestly, if you, if you're at the, if you're farther along in your collegiate career or certainly into the professional, uh, uh, ranks, one of the things I learned down there is the chance of seeing a professional pitcher that has an absolutely pristine elbow MRI is just very rare. Um, now, the thing is, those guys may not have major problems or you may get an MRI because they're having, you know, uh, issues in other areas of the elbow. And you may look at it and go, oh, God, the UCL looks kind of funky. If they don't have forearm tightness, if they don't have pain medially, that's an incidental finding. And that's probably that's probably as much to do with their volume of work over time. And so I think that that's probably one of the one of the big things is, um, you know, differences in how you approach things and how you look at things and determining you know is that is that something that we need to be worried about is that something that we need to to look at and and you know dr andrews and and the guys in birmingham would get a lot of mris sent down um and and to review uh and you know particularly for the baseball guys he, he was in you know in particular would talk about you know needing to lay hands on their elbow and ask them questions i mean Shoot, if you watch if you watch any of those guys uh, down there, uh, you know, the, the those mentors that I described, they all trained with Dr. Andrews. And if you watch them in clinic, the bulk of what they're doing is asking questions just over and over, um, you know, things like that. Uh, uh, pitch volume. How long have you been throwing? When's the last time you took a break? Does it bother you at this time, this time, this time? And th- you just keep asking questions. And you can get to a, a pretty good understanding of things and then getting a chance to actually examine the person and see is their pain here, is there pain there. And the other thing they would do down there a fair bit is, you know, if, if there was any question, you know, they had a, they had a uh, biomechanical setup with Dr. Fleissig uh, and certainly Kevin Wilk is a, a very well-known therapist in the PT world uh, that's been down there for years with those guys. And they would, you know, they would have them go, these guys go down and throw with Dr. Fleissinger or, or, you know, have an evaluation by Dr. Wilk and see, you know, biomechanically uh, and, and just kind of uh, their baseline uh, physical fitness where they were. Um, and, and you can just do a lot of work in that setting. And I think that, I think that that's probably where it comes down to is, you know, some places don't have that, uh, that elaborate of a setup or that thorough of a setup. But, you know, one of the things that, that was imparted to us is you got to keep asking questions. Um, you just got to keep asking and, and you might get to a root cause in that regard. So I think that I think that a lot of it just comes down to, um, you know, an individual's experience, um, what what they may have seen. And, and that was a lot of times the, the, the wonder of Dr. Andrews is the wealth of experience that he had that he could, you know, rely on uh, previous experience and taking care of these guys. And so that's usually where differences come, it may be like, well, you know, when somebody like Dr. Andrews, you, you see, you know, thousands of UCL injuries versus somebody uh, in a community practice that may not have seen very many or, or may not have a lot of experience with it. So
0: what are the differences in some of the procedures now than when you first started? It just seems like there's a little bit different now with UCL and, and how you can attack it and, and help it get better. What are some of the different procedures now?
1: Sure. Uh, well, so when I, when I was in my training, the, the bulk of the conversation was, do you need a UCL reconstruction or not? I mean, U- UCL, the so Tommy John is the other term that people will describe a lot, but the ulnar collateral ligament on the inner part of the medial part of the elbow. Um, when that's injured, uh, as we talked about, there's a couple different things that go into, into the conversation. Certainly non-operative is the, is the mainstay that we start with. and, and, That's really what we impart and talk about rest and things of that nature. But if you get to the point where somebody is really struggling or is at the point where they've got a significant enough injury that they can't throw or get back to compete, um, then the conversation turns surgical. And at that time, the the kind of the mainstay was UCL reconstruction, which is effectively replacing the ligament. So people hear repair. That is generally more of a true we're working to sew something back together or reattach. Versus reconstruction, and that is where you have to replace the the ligament itself, and so that was the mainstay of it. And, and there was different ways of doing that in terms of tissue. You could use uh, uh, kind of a there's a tendon in the forearm, and and a lot of folks call the palmaris, uh, and that you could use that. Uh, you could use hamstring tendon. That's another uh, a good source of what we call autograft or tissue from your body. Um, and that was the the bulk of what was done. There was occasionally some, uh, what we call allograft or cadaver tissue used pretty rare, particularly in Birmingham. That was not a, that was not a, uh, that was not a primary graft. It was, yeah, I didn't only, have
0: many of them, but it always seemed like it was the hamstring where they were taking yeah. the, the tendon from is the hamstring.
1: Yeah. I think most surgeons are, are, are very comfortable getting that graft. And so, so that, that situation for a reconstruction, You were, you know, doing an exposure on the inner aspect of the elbow. Um, Sometimes you were moving the nerve. Uh, We traditionally did move the ulnar nerve so that it wouldn't be an irritant. And then you are, you are drilling tunnels into the bone or using an anchor system to put that new tissue in to replace the, 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 uh, the ligament. Um, And that's the traditional Tommy John. I mean, there's been variants of it, you know, over the years and there's been different techniques, but that was, you know, that was the original, kind of concept from Frank Job all the way back when Tommy John was with the Dodgers was getting a new uh, new band of tissue in that spot and then rehabbing it. Um, and the rehab for that is, I mean, has been traditionally 14 to 16 months in MLB players, the average is 15 months. And so th- that obviously um, that obviously was the, the big drawback, right. Is that, you know, you'd tell a guy, basically the day you had surgery, you're swinging all the way through next year and maybe a little bit of chunk of change, but if you could get through that, the results were generally very good. Return to play was was quite good, particularly in comparison to traditional uh, stuff. So that was the bulk of what was done. Um, and then, kind of in the last probably eight years or so, there's been a little bit of a, a little bit of a change into h- how we view things. Now, some of that stuff uh, uh, came out of. Uh, Dr. Buddy Savoie, who's now at Tulane, uh, was previously in in Mississippi, and his group was doing uh, repairs of UCL uh, in select positions and select situations and and was showing some pretty good results. Uh, And through that, there was further pioneering of a a repair technique uh, that uh, Dr. Dugas at Birmingham, as I mentioned earlier, has kind of really championed uh, and has has really kind of done uh, a number of the procedures uh, and has done... Uh, quite a bit of the uh, the research on it. And they're showing really good uh, rates of return. Um, and so that technique is effectively utilized if somebody has a partial tear or what's, sometimes what's, a, a, what's
0: considered a par- partial, you know, so with a, a repair, as opposed to a reconstruction, what what is it a, as far as percentage of a tear?
1: Well, so in effect, if you've got if you've got probably 50% or more, a lot of folks just that's that's too much. They, they can't handle the torque on the elbow. Now position of the tear is really important. So if you have what's called an avulsion where the ligament pulls off of one side, either on the humerus side or the ulna side, if it pulls off, that's actually a, a really, uh, a really good situation for a repair because the bulk of the tissue is in good situation. If you can just get that tissue reattached in the heel, does really nicely and so that's that's actually one of the one of the best indications for that repair technique Um, but if somebody has a partial thickness tear within the within the main substance um, oftentimes you can still do this ucl repair um, and we use a we use a uh, uh, what we call a fiber tape or a collagen dipped tape that actually serves as a strut an internal strut we call it an internal brace throughout the, the orthopedic community um, and what that does is it kind of backs things up while that tissue is allowed to heal. Um, and so that's, that's a technique that has, has really kind of been advanced in the last probably eight years or so. Um, the results have been good. Um, and the recovery is much shorter. And that's why I was going to
0: at- ask. What's the, what's the difference? And that's where I, I see, and I have a, a player who's at Indiana state now that had the the repair that's pitching and and pitching fine. Um, he, he had issues last year, um, when I took the job with the ABCA, but he's had the repair and he's thrown fine.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's generally more in the six to eight month range versus that 14 to 16 months. And so, um, it, it, it's a, it's a game changer for those guys. Cause I will tell you that even in an evulsive situation where the tissues pulled off, uh, prior to doing the repair, you you would oftentimes just have to bite the bullet and do a, do a reconstruction. And a lot of times in some of these, these partial tears, we would nurse these guys along for a long, long time. Lots of rehab, obviously, which is still very important because there's, there's plenty of data that says that even in a partial tear, if you can get them rested, you can rehab them. You can get, you can work biomechanics on them and make sure that their technique is good those guys can still come back and and, and still do very well in return to sport. But some of those guys can't get over the hump. And so it was always, you know, for a lot of us, it was a situation where you'd be sitting there going, man, is this, do I really need to do the full full money on this kid? Um, You know, at the professional level where, you know, Dr. Andrews is looking at this, these guys are looking um, next contract. Where do I got to be? Things like that. For some of those guys, they've got the leeway to say, you know, I want, I want a reconstruction. I know what that entails. I, I've got service time in. I know that I'm gonna get a look right away coming back. Um, that's a person that maybe, uh, you know, uh, a reconstruction it makes more sense for. Um, what, what I find in my practice, the, the repair is really good for is these guys that have these more of a, a, an avulsive tear a tear off of the bone um, and also guys that are shortchanged in time. If, if, you're, a, if you're a junior in high school and, and you're, you're not going to, to pitch at UCLA, you're not going to Michigan, you're not going to a, a power five school, uh, and you don't even know if you want to play baseball more, you just know that you want one more year with your buddies uh, and, a, and a reconstruction basically washes that you can, you can, you can go that route of repair and those guys can rehab. And and I've seen a bunch of them come back and be able to pitch uh, that last year in high school or, you know, a kid that's at a, uh, a smaller school, um, you know, that, that really is like, I I like playing college baseball because I really love baseball and it's kind of my identity at this school, but I'm not playing independent ball in a couple of years. I'm not trying to catch on with anybody, but man, I, I love playing. And I can't imagine being without this for that long. You can, you can go the route of repair and and rehab them and give them a go. And and I think for me in particular, that's been, that's been really beneficial. It's been a nice technique that, you know, you can do. and, And, and we have conversations with those guys. It's not a, it's not an end all be all. There are, there are instances where, you know, it, it may not work out for him. Uh, baseball's tough. There's a lot of torque on the arm, and even in the best of circumstances, it may not work out. But uh, the data out there has been very good for it when you when you indicate it correctly. If you're doing if you do a internal brace or repair, if and somebody's got a complete mid substance uh, UCL tear, you may be buying them time for a last season. But honestly, if you if you're talking to somebody that has designs on something further, that's going to be a reconstruction situation, um, for them long-term.
0: And is that, are the differences on the throwing protocols then between a, a repair and a reconstruction, are those different? Or are they similar still?
1: Uh, the, the throwing protocols typically are similar in terms of what we're doing. It's just that they're advanced, right? So they're, they're, they, they're brought up, uh, you know, obviously like we talked about, sometimes as much as six months. Um, And and much of it is because when you're talking about a reconstruction, we're putting new tissue in there. Um, That tissue has to heal into the way it's attached. So if you put bone tunnels in, or if you anchor it in, it's gotta heal to its attachments. Um, And much like we see in ACL surgery, the body is really powerful and that it will take tendinous tissue, which is on the microscopic level, different than ligament tissue, and it will continually turn those cells over until it becomes and functions like a ligament. But that process is long. It is a, I mean, it's months. And so it's constantly turning over and maturing. And so if you're, if you take a UCL reconstruction and you try to put them on a timeline that we're doing in a repair, it, it's gonna end badly. I mean, it just is. Cause that ligament that it's either not gonna fully heal um, or it's gonna be at risk for early, or early failure. And so the repair, because it's native tissue, and particularly in if it's off of one side, it's healing to bone. It's your tissue. It's recognized well. It's ligamentous tissue, um, and generally, it, it has a it has a bil- ability to heal quicker. Um, and so that's why you've been able to kind of move up those protocols. But in the end, in the end, the it's still the it's still the work in base legs first getting range of motion back, getting strength back, and then working through many of the same, uh, you know, throwers, 10 exercises, things like that, that, that Kevin Wilkin, his crew in Birmingham have, you know, championed for years, you know, good basic technique, good rotator cuff strength. You know, a lot of these guys, you got to really impart to them, like, hey, you can't forget the shoulder, man, like, we know you had surgery on your elbow, but if you try to recover from an elbow and then you come in and your cuffs not activating, that's going to be bad, too. So you do all of those those basic protocols and then you get into the interval throwing programs. And those are you know, those have been uh, pretty steady over the years. There's little tweaks to them, but generally speaking, it's still those same protocols. It's just it's just scooched forward
0: you know and, and there's been some on the baseball side uh, especially from the training facilities maybe that maybe the on ramp needs to be more and maybe less time off the mound but i mean this these protocols have been around for a long time is is there any more tweaking to that i know you mentioned some tweaks but maybe being a little bit more aggressive with the long toss piece and maybe not starting on the mound as much but again this is going to be an individualized you know, the human body's different for everybody, right? So some guys are going to take to that throwing program a little bit better than others. Correct.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the, you know, the thing about it is it is, as I tell a lot of folks when they're going through this recovery, it, whether it's elbow shoulder, whatever it is, if you're talking about a, a an interval throwing program, I think that most patients, uh, most athletes, most most athlete families think that it is a, it is a, uh, straight slope, straight up to the moon. And doc said it's this many months and I got this throwing program and it says this many weeks. Um, But the reality of it is, is that much of it is kind of a a very kind of undulating, almost like sine wave uh, with the overall slope being positive. But there are days where it's like kids will go out, they'll go to throw and they're like, it doesn't feel great. And you got to tell them, okay, well that just means you got to back off one step in the protocol and then work up. Now, I think that, and I just had this conversation with, uh, with a young guy that's a, that's, you know, an elite, uh, elite player, um, and had some work done in Birmingham is, is here in the Midwest now and kind of recovering and, and is, is following up in our clinic. Um, and there's a lot of discussion about long Taurus, uh, mound work. Um, I think it is, it is very individualized. You know, I was joking with, with them a little bit, um, you know, this is years ago uh, when uh, Mariano Rivera was still playing for the Yankees. Right. And they were, they were at Wrigley for a game. And I was sitting in the bleachers. I'm a big Yankees fan, as you know, and I was sitting in the bleachers and this was before Mo tore his ACL shagging fly balls. So he was still in the outfield. Um, he was shagging and guys would yell from the bleachers, Hey, you know, throw us the ball, throw us the ball. And he would just kind of just nonchalantly lean back and just, toss a ball into the, into the midsection of bleachers. Um, and then kept going. And then there was guys on the rooftop that started yelling and I watched him just kind of, kind of very care, like just kind of just smoothly lay back, take one step and toss a ball from center field at Wrigley into the rooftops with what appeared to be no strain whatsoever. Um, And it was incredible. And you just know, you know, Andrews would talk about guys like that. You know, God touched that guy's arm, and that's kind of the way he is. So long toss for a guy like him is nothing. And if you watch – if you're at an MLB game uh, pregame and you're watching a guy warm up, you know, you watch the catchers and these guys, I mean, they're playing – long toss. I mean, easy. they are, and it's easy.
0: Know. That's the thing that always stuck out is I would tell people like, Hey, go watch a guy play long toss. If it's easy and it's coming out and it's going a long way, he's probably got a chance to be, to pitch for a long time.
1: Absolutely. And those are the guys that, you know, you see that and you're like, okay, I'm going he can, he can keep working back and kind of generate that, that kind of long-term conditioning. Um, but it's, it's, variable you could see a guy that you were like oh he's got a he's got a strong arm he's got a good base and you watch him play long toss and he's opening way up and, and really like thrusting his left shoulder around and and you can just see the amount of strain he's trying to drive with um, and, and for that guy that kind of long toss is probably not going to be great for him in the long term now, it's always, there's a little bit of trial and error, right? And a little bit of that is trying to see, um, you know, for each individual what that may be. And, and as you know, things, uh, there's terms like comparison is the death of joy. So if you're, if you're on a high school team or you're on a college team and you got a teammate and he's one of these guys that's, you know, just nonchalantly going, you know, you know, warning track to warning track with a, with a, with a long toss. And you're finding that you really want to keep up with that, but you are absolutely having to just rifle it, you don't need to do that. That's that that's just not the way it's gonna work for you. Find and that a doesn't different mean partner. you're not yeah, exactly. You got I mean, it's a different story. And so from a long toss standpoint, I think the biggest thing is coaches really watching those guys play long toss. If it's smooth and they feel and they look good doing it, it's gonna be fine. If they are if they are working, working hard at long toss that's probably not their jam. Now, there's been some studies, mound work work versus flat ground work. And and some people adamantly believe that you gotta go flat ground, flat ground, flat ground, and then work into the mound work. Um, That's what I'm more traditionally used to. um, But there's been some biomechanics stuff that says that honestly, it's not a lot different in the torque. Um, it, it It doesn't change a ton. Um, And again, I think, I think a lot of that's individual and, and, you know, honestly, you know, a decade ago, there was certain spots throughout the country, like at ASMI in Birmingham, where they could do that biomechanical work and they could really break stuff down um, and tell a guy, Hey, listen, you you, got to do this or this, or we need to work on this. If you're going to advance nowadays, that's, I wouldn't say it's ubiquitous, but there's Lots of stuff. I mean, I I will tell you that in the last year, I'd never seen it. And I had a 16-year-old kid, um, not local, kind of a regional kid, that brought in a bunch of, you know, velo stats and a bunch of arm angle stats from uh, a regional center that he was working with. And, and honestly, you know, for me, that's, like, tough. Like, I'm I'm focused day-to-day on, like, you know – surgical techniques, indications, things like that. So I'm getting, you know, I get, you know, I try to stay up as much as I can, but you get some of this. And sometimes it can be a little bit of overload for that stuff. And it really does come down to sometimes having a coach that's watching these guys play catch, watching them do a program, having good trainers that have have been through this before um, and and seen it. I mean, I I tell you the, you know, uh, Andrews, Dr. Andrews does a a really good – uh, baseball course uh, that is injuries in baseball um, uh, through ASMI. Uh, and this year they did it virtually, uh, but I've been to it in person as well. I-, I tell you that is a great, great conference for any coach. Um, there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, focus yeah, on. Yeah, you sent me
0: pictures from that before, like, and that was in that's in one of my questions to talk about the conference because you've sent me stuff while you were attending.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's phenomenal. I mean, they do, you know, obviously the surgeons are there. Uh, there's a lot of physical therapists, um, you know, guys like Stan Conti, um, are there, uh, guys that have been trainers in the, in the MLB for years and years. And it's interesting. You you can get in your head. Like I gotta, I gotta know all these, uh, these data points, or I gotta think about like this. And I tell you, some of these, some of these guys that have been doing it for years, Um, that maybe have a little bit of gray hair, uh, uh, maybe have less hair than I do, which seems almost impossible at this point in my life. But those guys, some of them, they will, they will just harken back to like, you got to get them going and you got to watch them and and have them throw a little bit and and you can tell if something's going on or if they're feeling confident again. Um, But that conference is awesome. I mean, I would, I would highly, highly, highly recommend to any of your, any of your coaches, um, uh, that follow through ABCA. That's, that's a great one. Um, you know, some of that stuff, it, it may be, you know, you're like, well, that may not be applicable to you, but there's, there's some real pearls in there that uh, that can be effective. Um, and certainly in person, it's a great way to network and ask questions, um, you know, and even virtually they were doing it question wise, but that, that's a really good one. If, you know, if there's coaches out there that really want to kind of get a little bit more, uh, background into that so they have a little bit more uh, a sense of how things can can look with injuries and then certainly with recovery as well
0: you know it seems like parents and players maybe aren't as trusting now uh, with a diagnosis without an MRI and you know as a coach you know how how do you kind of battle that a little bit with a player that may be a little bit banged up and okay you need to stay on your rehab or now it's time to just go get a picture because we're either going to know that they need surgery or we know that they're okay and they need to maybe push through some of that general soreness that they're getting because they're off routine a little bit.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a, that is a, that's a great question. In, in reality, that's, a, that's probably one of the toughest things that we deal with. Um, I thought that was the hardest me, thing
0: as a coach uh, to deal oh, with, with players because you want to be cognizant of their pain because you don't know how much pain they're in but you also know, you know, as long as I was doing it, I had guys that maybe were a little tender that just needed to push through, but, you know, you just had so much he say, she say without, without going to get a picture. So, you know, where is kind of that cutoff?
1: Yeah. So for me, it's a lot of, it's the time frame, right? So if it's a, if it's a scenario where, um, you know, somebody's had pain for a couple of weeks, um, my first question is always have, what what's been the routine over the last two weeks? Um, are you still throwing? Are you? Are have you done rest? Are you in the training room? Are you? Have you tried any uh, anti-inflammatories? Uh, things of that nature. If they if they say, well, no, I, you know, I I threw on Saturday, and and they're calling or coming in, and it's Thursday. My answer is, hey, le- come on, let let's be smart about it. I'll tell you, most of the coaches that I interact with, um, particularly at the collegiate level have a good handle on that i mean i don't i don't have um fortunately and even in even at the high school level around us um, as much as the north can be sometimes portrayed as a, a baseball vacuum it, it's very popular as you know uh in our area um and a lot of those guys have gotten pretty savvy about that and and nobody's nobody's willfully twisting their mustache and like trying to put these kids through things. Um, so a lot of these guys that have been shut down or have been given a rest, or they've been, or they've skipped a start or they've, uh, they've, uh, avoided some bullpens for a little bit. Um, and so if, if they've been, if they've been resting, if they've been, um, if they've been good about, uh, rehab, things like that, then to me, it's the exam. If it's a, if it's a nondescript soreness, um, then I, I'm going to have a conversation about, let's give it some time. Let's rest um you know get back into your throwers ten. make sure you're doing your band work stuff i'll tell you that's actually been one of the benefits is you know band work has actually become a little bit more uh popular i guess is the term and people are starting to understand it better so we're seeing more guys do that which is certainly good preventative stuff um so if they're if, if they haven't done that, hey, stuff, is there
0: is there too much with that i think it's like anything else you see it, it and i loved it and i thought it helped our position players and our pitchers. Is there a chance for where – where's the cutoff where it might be too much where it's now an overtraining thing?
1: Uh, well, I think that's – I think it's certainly possible. I mean, you know, it's, it's a situation where if I'm at a college game or even some of these high school games, you'll see a guy that's, uh, you know, about to go on the mound, and he'll be 20 minutes of just lots and lots of work on the bands, and, you know, whether that – I don't know if that's his routine every single time or what, but you can imagine – if that's what he's doing on a, on a, on a day on the mound, you know, you don't know what, what that is beyond. So it is truly like a, a happy, happy medium, right? Like uh, you know, my son's 13. So we try to impart that stuff to the young guys and you'll see those guys do what amounts to basically no band. They'll just go over there and be chit chatting, you know, and then you'll see guys that are uh, are really getting after it. I think that, you know, it's, it's all a balance uh, certainly. Um, but you know, and, and going back to that MRI question, uh, if somebody's been dealing with it for a while, um, you know, it may be something where you, you got to pull the trigger on it. Um, I, I would tell you that, um, you know, early on, uh, you know, you hear forearm tightness, um, you know, early on in practice, I'd be a little bit more apt to be like, OK, let's let's see how this goes. I will tell you that's actually been one of the more uh, more common giveaways for UCL problems is. Um, if they're talking about forearm tightness, and it's on the inside,
0: um, right? Yes,
1: yes, on the inside and, and of the it, elbow
0: because I, I mean, just, first two weeks of practice at Evansville, we threw so much the outside of the elbow was barking where you would you would cry almost during practice. But again, for me, that's a difference on the outside of the elbow or the inside of the elbow.
1: Oh, absolutely. yeah, absolutely. The high, high volume high volume practice, a lot of times we'll see it on that outside inside they'll talk about forearm tightness and you know previously i be like oh yeah well you need to be doing your stretching and do this and do that and now you know as you get further along and you're kind of constantly trying to keep your ears open to this stuff you know ahmad's group in new york basically showed that that was a i mean for all levels that was uh that was a warning sign so that's that's probably one of those ones where if a, if a kid comes to a coach and he's continuous and it's tight, it doesn't, I can't coach. It doesn't feel like I can loosen up. That's not truly like a tightness thing. That's that's their sensibility of what it feels like to have strain in that area. And they're trying to compensate their body's trying to compensate. So for me, that one's that one usually gets an MRI. Um, the other thing is timing. I mean, I, as you know, from, from, uh, all of your experience coaching, every kid is in a different headspace, right? So, I mean, I'll see a guy come into clinic. I'm having elbow pain. I'm usually in contact with the coach and the trainer. Um, I ask about volume of pitching, how much have they been throwing? Again, most of the collegiate guys in particular are, have a, have a system that they, that they're pretty adherent to high school. Yeah. Sometimes not maybe as much, um, but, if I'm talking to them, one of the first things I ask is how'd the last two outings look what their what their velocity look like? Are they throwing the same velocity If the velocity is dropping, that's another giveaway that I get concerned about. If the velocity is the same and they're getting they're getting beat up on maybe they played a team that's uh, uh, maybe a little bit better, maybe they struggled a little bit. sometimes it's trying to gauge is it is it concerned because they got teed off on a little bit or is it concerned because they don't feel right and they don't feel comfortable on the mound, right? That's a tough thing. You know, pitchers, uh, you know, a lot of pitchers, you got to be a little bit like a D back, right? You got to have a short memory because you can't carry that inning to inning, but that's where the, I got to rely on the coach a little bit. Like is, is does he look comfortable out there. Do his bullpens look normal. Um, it is, uh, you know, one of the things that, that we'll talk about is how, how much time is he taking between pitches? Is he, is he getting, is he walking towards the catcher and getting it and then walking all the way around the mound and then getting back on the mound and then going, um, those things to me, that, that is a, that's hesitancy, uh, to throw. And the question becomes, is that hesitancy before, because he's trying to give the coach another, couple seconds to say, okay, let's, let's bring the lefty in. Or is he doing that? Because he's like, I don't feel good throwing this next pitch. So th- th- if that's, if it's truly like he doesn't feel good throwing the next pitch, I'm more apt to get an MRI. The other thing is, I will tell you the, the, the other time frame that is the worst for me. And, and I just went through it is the January to early March zone, particularly with, for collegiate guys because you know, it's
0: coming just off like COVID, spring training for the, for the big league guys. It's that, yep. it's that initial probably haven't on ramped enough. You're getting off the mound, you're throwing against batters for the first time and maybe haven't been built up enough. And that was always the scary time for me. It's the similar, it's similar to MLB guys in spring training.
1: Yeah. And they get, and those kids, you know, they, they maybe feel good one day and then a couple days later, they don't feel good. Um, I I would tell you whether it's right or wrong, I I have ordered more MRIs in that time frame uh, to some degree out of respect for uh, a family's wishes um, and on occasion out of respect to a coach's wishes because –
0: well, it alleviates you know, fears. I, that, and that's why I brought up the question because I felt like towards the end, it was the only thing that was going to alleviate their fears about throwing. And that once they figured out that the picture was clean and they there was no structural damage in there, they, they took off with their throwing again. Yep. Um, or yeah, even like that, wrist injuries, happen. small, you know, with position players, with their hands, with just. All right, go get a picture. That way, it's your peace of mind, and you're not having to, to gut check. You, you know, you see with position players with hamate bone stuff. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that, that's where I ran into it more with position players was with the hamate than it was anything with their throwing arm. Where it's just okay, go get a picture, and and that way, it's it, you've got some peace of mind that you're okay.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I think that you know that plays a role. I mean, that you know, trying to get mentally in the right headspace. Um, but also trying to, you know, for for your team and your staff trying to figure out, is this is this young man going to be able to go? To, to me, the the one thing I worry about a lot, too, is eligibility. Now, obviously, in COVID, you know, much of the levels uh, through NCA and, uh, you know, junior college ranks and NAIA, they've honored a, honored a year of eligibility coming back. So that, that bought some time for some of these kids. But. You know, one of the things I worry about to some degree is if a kid's struggling and, you know, I'm seeing him in February, if it it smells like it's a problem, I'm a little bit more apt to get that MRI because what I don't want is for him to labor through March and April, then get told, hey, bud, yeah, you know, it's not working out. We're going to have to do something or we got to shut you down. And then I'm... (coughs) I'm happy to do it. Cause I've done it a bunch of times, um, where you're, you're interacting with, uh, conferences NCA, and JCAA, where you're having to basically be like, you know, preserve a kid's eligibility and say, he, he wasn't appearing in enough. And, and you, you want to kind of keep those kids in a, in a chance. So it is true that that, that, that gets done more. It probably helps that MRI is more readily available. It probably helps that, um, the quality has gotten a lot better over the years, um, but yeah, I mean, sometimes you end up having to pull the trigger on those things for a variety of reasons.
0: Hey, at what age is it okay to have some general soreness after they throw? You know, I mean, I what's realistic? So, I mean, we we all have had younger <coughs> kids, but realistic when when should they have or should they ever have some soreness after they throw?
1: Well, I think it's I think it's you know it's a scenario where again it can be variable, but I, in general i'm okay with a little bit of soreness if you're in the probably in the you know 12u 13u and up right like to me you can have a little bit of generalized soreness the caveat to that is that can be a little bit of soreness the day after throwing um if it fades off and it's gone the next day um you know and it's not a big deal and a lot of it depends on where the soreness is like if it's you know, I'll see some young kids with more triceps-based stuff, or like you mentioned, sometimes, you know, outer or lateral aspect, um, will get some soreness. Um, if it's the day after, you know, um, my my recommendation to those kids generally is, you got to get in, you got to get in some cardio, you know, you got to stretch, maybe do some of your band work. You don't need to pick up a ball the day after throwing like that, and see if it if it's something where it's like then it's the next day, still sore. Well, to me, that's, you know, that we're starting to get into red flag zone. If it's something where it's like, it feels like workout soreness, you know, I threw. For me,
0: outside of the elbow, back of the the shoulder, that's a strengthening issue and we need to to get you built up. Inside of the forearm, front of the shoulder, that's where if we have some pain there, those were, were more red flags for me.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and that's, and that's true. If you're below, and honestly 12U is even kind of a little bit like, uh, um, you know, because at some point, if you're, if you're a 10 year old, if you're 11 year old and you're throwing enough that the next day you, you can't play catch, like even a light catch. That's to me, that means it's, it's too much, you know? And, um, and I think it depends, right. I think it depends on, Um, you know, there's a variety of, of, you know, youth situations. There's teams that use youth teams that are practicing every day. There's youth teams that are practicing a couple times a week and playing games. Um, there's youth teams that are practicing once a week and playing games. And I think that, you know, a little bit of it depends on volume and a little bit depends on, you know, are are we, are we gauging on those young guys? Um, what it's right. I think high school, you know, you get to high school gets easier because, You know, a good coach is watching those kids throw. A good coach that's been doing it a little bit has a routine, has a – And pitch limits
0: now, and I was going to ask you that. Have you seen some high school injuries go down now because of the pitch limits at the high school (laughs) level?
1: It's variable. So I I think that pitch limits are are great. I I think that, you know, uh, here in Iowa, as you know – it used um, to be 16
0: innings a week. <laughs> yeah, it, it, was, it nope. became.
1: Yeah, it was that's, not it. that's not a pitch no. limit.
0: That's not a pitch limit. That's an innings limit, which is uh, two different stories.
1: We, as you and I have talked about many a time, you'd see a uh, you'd see a kid for a conference situation that would get the would take the bump on a Monday, complete game, and oh yeah, well no, he got he he didn't. He's throw got on nine Tuesday, innings Wednesday, left this
0: week, He's and then got nine Thursday left.
1: would be and Thursday would be another another complete game. Um, you know, and, and, and those kids would go, you know, 13 and one or whatever. And then at the end of the year, it'd be tough, but pitch limits have helped. They, they have helped out. I'll tell you the difficulty for some of these coaches is it gets confusing because the pitch limits reset, right? So it basically becomes, you know, I'd have to look it up specifically. I think it's 90, But if you throw 90, you're kind of, if you throw 90 early in the week, you're washed for a period of time. Right. So you're kind of, you're kind of out, but there's lots of coaches that are savvy. So they're, you know, they're keeping them 87. So they can, they've got another, you know, 40 pitches that week. Um, or, you know, as the, as the year goes on, it goes up. And so you get higher, but, um, but in general that's helped. It it truly has, you know, and that, um, Coaches are are trying to have to figure out, like, okay, i I got to be smart about games and how they're spaced. And if, you know, the thing
0: I've seen actually – And getting more people involved on the mound. Like, you got to maximize your roster then. You might have to have a kid work off the mound that may never throw an inning. We had to do it at Western a couple times. I was having position players that had pitched in high school throw bullpens and never threw an inning that spring just in case – we so we wouldn't have to bang some guys up just in case. They never threw a competitive inning that spring, but they were throwing bullpens on the side just in case we are going to have to use them at some point.
1: Oh, absolutely. And I think that that's probably – I mean, that's probably the thing that's been seen the most is there's more guys that have to get in there. Now, some of these teams that, you know, traditionally in, in our area would drop in 40 games. I mean, they'd max out – they'd play – conference monday thursday um and then and then go hit a go hit a uh, 18 tournament on on saturday um i've seen those teams you know even the traditional powers uh, in the midwest have backed off and and they're they're sitting more in that 30 game range because they don't they may not have enough arms but they also may say well you know we want to be careful about that so that that's helped the inning issue was always what's an inning right like an inning can be five pitches, you know, super efficient. It can be 35 pitches and grinding and and, and needing a double play to get out of it. Um, and, and I think that, you know, fortunately, I think some of that, like, grinder mentality, um, at least the high school level and, and certainly the collegiate level, has gotten far better. So we're understanding that stuff. The time that, honestly, that I still struggle mightily with is – like fourteen U and below. I mean, it is. Uh, well, it's a, a good, tournament a structure
0: v- again. They're they're not. You know, some tournaments still are not using pitch limits. They're using in- inning limits. And like yep. we said, like that's a completely different story. An inning and and a pitch are a completely different story.
1: Yeah, and, it, and it's tough because some of these tournaments may even say, "Yeah, we're we're going to do it," but that they, they got they got to get volunteers to work the concession stand and the and and get an umpire that you know hopefully it doesn't get yelled at all day and so it's tough for them to monitor that it, it's just a slippery slope a good, a good a good friend of mine that I coach with uh, his son was playing this last weekend and played a played a good team and uh, they, they sent a 12-year-old to the mound for 6 innings on you know the last weekend in April and it's like you just you, you know you think okay yeah well if it's 10 pitch innings but you just know they're not and, and so to me I worry because I, I know that that kid's not sitting out the rest of this week, right? He's not, you know, taking taking the week off, working back, and going to throw the next Saturday like a college guy is, right? Yeah, the like college, college and pro guy is guy,
0: completely different. They have the rest of the week to recover. You yeah. know, even a pro guy who's on a five-day schedule has four days to get ready for his next start. A college guy has six days. So, I mean, we always – you know, you joke, you know, one hour of rest for every pitch you throw competitively. So you could have a college guy on a seven-day schedule throw 120 pitches. He's got plenty of time to yeah. recover. High school and youth kids don't have that type of recovery time built in because they're playing other positions and, and yeah. they're playing way more games. <laughs> That's the thing. A, a youth schedule, they may play eight, nine games, ten games in a week. College guys Correct. aren't doing that. Pro guys aren't doing that.
1: No. And, and, those, and, the, and that's where the, that's where the difficulty is going to come. It's, you know, it's the, it's the uh, packed in games. Um, we still see kind of these, you know, the term I use for it is mercenary um, kind of kids that, you know, may play with one team during the week. Um, they may have a tournament one weekend with that team, but the next weekend, the, the team's off and there's another team that says, Hey, we, you know, we need you to, we're going to Kansas city and we need, we need a guy to be able to throw innings. Um, that kid is at super risk because he's, you know, you can have a coach that's well-intentioned and he's doing his best. If that kid's throwing for another team, he may have no, no idea what that's happening, what what's happening with that. Um, the other one that Dr. Andrews used to hammer away at is particularly in the youth, youth ranks, you know, pitching and catching is, is a is a anathema. It's it's not a good it's not a good combo. You know the the days of you know a, a good friend of ours that that uh, that coached locally here in high school. And again, you know early on everybody had the, the the best pitcher caught the second game of the the DH man. He was the you would never. You would never not utilize him, and, and nowadays, you know, those guys even look back on that and they cringe because they know, you know, they're like, "Now, God, now we never do something like that." Um, and that's still happening a ton at the youth ranks. Like, well, uh, Joey's going to throw the first three, and he's going to catch the latter three. Um, then he, he's not pitching the rest of the day, you know, so he, his arm's getting plenty of rest. And you're like, well, actually, he's got. He pitched eighty, and then he had hundred and twenty throws back to the pitcher. He took it down every inning. He loves to try to snap throw, pick off guys at first and third. And you're like, uh, the volume is is crazy. And those are the kids that that end up being at risk. It, it's tough.
0: How, how um, young for you? What, what was your what's your earliest age that you've had to, to do something with for you age wise? Uh,
1: I've I've had to repair at UCL on a fourteen year old um, uh, and had a very long conversation about that going into it. Um, I've seen a UCL tear in as young as 11. Um, and that's like,
0: uh, it doesn't seem possible.
1: It doesn't, it doesn't. And, um, that's a, that's a tough one because I, you know, I kind of,
0: I mean, is the there me, anything you know, in there to repair? I mean, they, they don't have a whole lot of muscle structure at that <laughs> point, do they?
1: Uh, the biggest problem you run into in those kids is that they haven't reached maturity. They haven't reached puberty yet. And so they still have, they still have growth plates around the elbow. And so much of the techniques that, that we rely upon are designed, uh, in adults, you know, reconstruction requires tunnels or repair requires anchor placement. Um, and those are in the areas of growth plates. And so, you know, yeah,
0: that's going to see... shift, right? I mean, as they grow, yeah, those I... areas are going to shift. You 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 run the risk
1: of, of growth changes and, and, and so um the fourteen year old that I fixed was physiologically an adult. I mean, he had he had his growth plates were were healed and you know, he's one of these kids that, you know, he he may have more facial hair at that time than I did, but um but the eleven year old, that's just like those are those are really tough conversations because you you have to kind of vacillate between just kind of this inner rage about how did an eleven year old get to it but you also have to think about, you know, uh, the situation I'm in, you know, uh, the training I've gone through, uh, the friends that I have in baseball and, and coaching. And, um, I, I just have a different experience level with it. And if you're a, if you're a parent and Johnny's good and, and we all like hearing our kids good, right. I mean, every one of us, uh, you know, likes to hear that, uh, he's really smart or he's, he's a good basketball player, man, he's, he's a tough pitcher. We like hearing that. And it, it becomes very easy to, to be like, okay, well, you know, he's got a rubber arm. I mean, he, he, he's, he's strong. He can go multiple innings. um, And it's tough because you just have to pause and say, they probably don't know that, right. They probably don't have that experience, but it's tough. It's a tough conversation when you tell them like, he probably needs like two years of not throwing,
0: well, how do we and continue they- to educate people? Because I, I still run into it. I talk to youth tournament directors all the time, and h- how do we continue to educate people? And this is why I wanted you to come on because people still don't understand. Like people still think that a, a youth kid can throw more than an, than an adult because they haven't developed. So yeah, go get them, Tiger. Like I mean, that's why I wanted you to come on. People need to hear this. That this this for me, it's an it's an epidemic. It is that that the and it's not just a baseball issue sure you're seeing this with the other sports too of kids specializing at a young age so lower extremity issues with soccer players or basketball players so it's not just a baseball issue correct
1: oh absolutely i mean it is a you know uh it's obviously one of dr andrew's passions um he's been uh, very involved with the stop program which is basically you know really trying to focus on that he's done that through little league baseball um most most articles that you see uh, dr Andrews uh, get interviewed for it's definitely not patting himself on the back over the years it's it's really harping on uh, you know regional newspapers you know and stuff where he's really harping on kind of these philosophies to try to get it out to the masses because it's tough i mean it, it really is i mean one of the one of the biggest things that he always talks about is uh, you know kind of the professionalization of these young kids where you know, you've seen it, the kid that has, you know, his bat bag and he's got a catcher's bag and hes got, they've got three uniforms and two bats and, and baseball is such a focus for them. Those kids have effectively become professional athletes. They're they expected to compete at a certain level in every tournament and there's pressures on them. And it's those pressures that beget, well, we got to get you with a pitching coach and we got to work on this and we got to do these things. Um, and he talks about that a lot where that, that creates pressures on these kids. The other thing that happens is the specialization just ends up being this kind of year round phenomenon. I mean, traditionally, like when I was in fellowship or even before that,
0: I had four <coughs> seasons South- growing up. People would be like, you're crazy. I had four separate sports seasons growing up. Like it was four sports and you would play one <laughs> season, move on to the next one, then move on to the next one. And, and baseball was summer. I mean that's that's when it was. It was summer. Absolutely. It was a summer season. Absolutely. Until, until you, I got to just, high school, baseball was a summer season. Yeah,
1: you'd you'd go into the it start uh, the leaves start changing colors and it was football. Uh, and then it would start getting cold and it was hoops. I mean, you grew up in, in Indiana, right? I mean, hoops was hoops could have been even longer than that, but um, but baseball, you know, in in our area in the Midwest um, the explosion of indoor facilities, um, travel teams, um, it's become eight, nine months out of the year, um, uh, at, at minimum. Um, you know, like anything, there are some programs that do a really nice job and know how to manage that. And there are some that, that don't. And I, I think that that's, that's
0: difficult, Especially the ones that have the weight room component with it. I mean, if, if you're diving into a, a program or, or someone to get involved with, if they have the training piece along with the playing piece where you can develop speed and agility and, and strength and some of that stuff. Now we're maybe working in the right direction because it's not going to be baseball for 12 months out of the year.
1: Oh, absolutely. You know, and Andrews would harp on uh, three months. You're not picking three months. You are not pick 3 months you do not pick up a ball. You're not throwing, um, you got to give it rest. And, and, and one of the difficulties is if you tell a kid, he can't pick up a ball and he only plays baseball, right. Um, he may make it a month.
0: Well, mom and dad aren't going to want him around the house or him or her around the house that much either.
1: Correct. Correct. And and so, you know, the, the safest workaround of that is, Hey, play hoops, you know, go out for track, like, um, do cross country, do football, Play lacrosse, like do do something else um, that occupies time. But at the same time, you know, you see all the all the draft data for the NFL. The amount of guys that are playing multiple sports that wrestle, that that play basketball, that play baseball and football. Those are guys that they've got a defined season where I, I don't I don't have the time to play football the way that you know I intend to and to go and throw every night you know and so it creates this natural kind of block to things so for me it's really like telling parents like get them involved in multiple stuff and if you and if they say he don't like anything else baseball is his thing that's his thing well then you got to get with somebody that knows what they're talking about that like as you said is is comfortable with a weight training program that says well you know what for three months we are going to we are going to optimize his lower half. He's going to he's going to be stronger. He's going to have more more fast twitch. He's going to be able to uh, recover on the lower half better than he ever has. Um, and we're gonna or or use that time to learn, right? You know, nowadays I don't pick a shoot, guitar
0: up. <laughs> and
1: yeah, anything. There's grounds right?
0: outside of sports.
1: And the other thing is those kids, you know, if if it's like, hey, my his passion is that. You know, back in the day, there wasn't (coughs) there wasn't all the video we have now Um, huddle and these other other uh, programs where you can watch games and you can and you can evaluate. I mean, there's you go on social media and sometimes it's overload, but you can watch games and you can learn about, you know, go back go back and and have somebody pull up all of Greg Maddox's uh, pitches, all of his starts learn, learn how to focus on doing different things as a pitcher than just throwing hard and take time to do that without having to pick up a ball. I mean, I, I think it's, you just have to try to figure out how to vary it. And we just, and time away constantly...
0: time away is going to spark that passion too. Like it, absolutely. it recharges the batteries. There's a reason you don't have to go into surgery every day.
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: I mean, yeah, I mean there's a, no doubt. We all need a break from it and it, it instills that passion Cause then they figure out they miss it too. Like, you know, once something you have to put it down for a little bit, you figure out how much you miss it and you love it and you want to get, you know, when you do start back up, then you're able to kind of hit it full go because you've had, you've put it down for a little bit.
1: Yeah. I mean, and those are the kids that, you know, when you come back from that, your, the commitment may be even a level up, right? And I, and I think that that's also, you know, that's also something really important is these kids, if they're going eight, nine months out of the year, the dropout rate from baseball in the high, at the high school level is, is crazy. You know, I don't have the, I don't have the number right in front of me, but it's, it's approaching like 50% by the time high school rolls around because it's those the kids switch from just,
0: the, to the bigger bases it's yep. to 60 feet, six inches and 90 foot bases. That's where you're starting to see the drop off because now it becomes more challenging.
1: Yep. And and I think the other thing is, I think those kids are just, you know, if you've been doing it nine months out of the year, your whole youth and it's been easy or you've been good that whole time. And then maybe kids are catching up. It's just not, it loses its passion for those kids. And as a, as a guy that really appreciates baseball and, and, I, I hate seeing that. I'd rather, I'd rather see kids play a little bit less so that they can get to high school and they can, you know, and, you know, and there's a lot of kids that go on from high school. I think the, you know, the, the dream of always being the power five guy or uh juco to minors role. There's a, there's a ton of smaller D one schools, D two D three you know, junior college routes where kids can go and still enjoy baseball and, and have a, have an awesome time as a collegiate athlete. And they don't have to be unbelievable. They can go and experience baseball through a different lens. Um, and so I'm, I'm hopeful that we'll get to that point where, you know, guys can really, uh, kind of maintain that passion and, and don't have to worry all the time about, well, you know, I, I wasn't throwing 80 by the time I was a freshman, so I don't have a role. You know, that's I, our next round of coaches, I too.
0: I, I tell the youth coaches that, you know, your biggest responsibility is to make sure they want to play next year and instill some love and passion for the game because that's going to be our next round of coaches and people that are involved, front office people, um, you know, as kids drop out you lose some really good coaches in there. You lose some lifelong baseball fans because it's no longer fun. So hopefully we can continue to, to, instill that. Um, Hey, what are some good things in practice? Um, you know, that, that maybe you thought were good in theory, but, but aren't good in practice.
1: In terms of like orthopedics or anything. baseball, anything, I think for me, uh, personally, for both my practice, but just watching things, I think that um, a lot of us get in the zone of as you're, you know, particularly for somebody in, in my career pathway, um, but this is applicable to a number of different uh, pathways. It, it ends up being you kind of are you're used to working hard at something, and you feel like. Well, I, you know, I'm an undergrad, I got to work, work my tail off to go to med school. I'm in med school. I want to go to the best residency. I'm in residency. I want to train with the best guy, the, you know, I want to go train with Andrews. So I, I can't have a, I can't have a slip up or I can't, you know, I can't take my foot off the pedal. Um, and, you know, in my world, my wife's a physician, as you know, as well, um, we're very competitive people and, and worked really hard. But in the last probably five years, I've kind of seen um, you can't, uh, sometimes you can't outwork a problem. You know, the, the concept that you drift back to of like, here's the problem. Well, the problem is that I got to, I got to crank on this thing even harder, right? Um, if my efficiency in clinic or the OR isn't where it needs to be, I gotta, I gotta work on my staff harder, and I gotta expect more of myself to, to uh, read more, to know more, to know the answer instantly, to be able to just kind of keep this stuff going. Same thing for coaches, right? Like, we've lost a couple games. I gotta get in, whether it's football, baseball. I gotta get in the lab. I gotta watch more video. I gotta pull this kid aside. He needs a thousand cuts in the cage. Um, and and what I've seen is that that can just be, uh, I mean, that can be a spiral, right? You know, in my practice, you know, if you grind away on your staff a bunch, that doesn't make anything more efficient, right? Um, Sometimes we don't know all the answers, right? You know, as physicians, uh, we're in a unique position that um, we want to know the answers and, and people, when they come see us, they want to be given an answer to be told, Hey, this is what it is. This is what we're going to do. And a lot of time we do have that answer, but sometimes we don't. And, and you have to, you have to allow for that. And you, you also have to allow for uh, an ability to understand that, like, maybe I can't outwork this situation, right? Like maybe that's not, maybe that's not the problem. Um, maybe it's, I need to, to take a step back and look at it from a different perspective Um, and the other thing is like, you know, just like anything we're, we're, you know, as a, as a physician, I'm competitive now. I mean, if, if, uh, I want to see more patients than the guy down the street, like I want to do more surgeries than the guy down the street. I want to be, uh, I want to be respected in our community. I want to, I want all of those things. Anybody that's got a professional arc wants all of those things, whether you're a coach, whether you're a position attorney engineer business owner whatever you you want some of that uh, outside uh, gratification or that outside well, yeah uh,
0: I, when people tell you how good you are it, it does feel good
1: absolutely and and I think that probably part of that though is that recently and you kind of start realizing that like that guy that you may be thinking you're competing with um, they have the same questions they have the same things that they're wondering about And one of the things that I think is great about ABCA is that it's a, it's a network. I mean, you got guys that that are going to your conferences or that are logging on uh, social media or jumping on webinars and things like that. It's, it's, you know, a scenario where, guys are collaborating. You may have more than enough
0: room in the pool. I tell people that all the time. When I, when I finally stopped looking around at what was going on outside and, and really focused on what I was doing individually and just trying to improve what I was doing, it opened the world up to me, um, by not worrying about you just, you know, when you're, you're focusing attention is on somebody else, you lose a lot of the journey and the fun pieces of the journey because you're focusing on the wrong things.
1: Yeah. And I think that, I think that that ability to have like a, you know, whether it's a a physician or a a coach that's been doing it a while that you may be like, well, I'm going to play their team next year. And I'm not, I'm not, I I don't want any to go have a conversation with, well, that's just short sighting yourself. Right. It doesn't do any good. And most, you know, Most people have those pearls and they have those things that are out there Um, and and you have to open it, open yourself up to it. And you have to open yourself up to like saying, well, can I be of help to you at some point? Right. Um, Instead of being like, well, I've got my my zone and I'm going to provide this surgery. I'm going to provide this care and I'm not opening it up to anybody else because I want those guys to come and see me eventually it, it, it just kind of chasms on it. It crumbles down on top of you. And so having people that you can call and be like, Hey, can you help me with this? Um, whatever. And we have, we have meetings similar to to you guys, but I think in the past I would go to those and I would take stuff in and I would be like, nah, maybe, maybe not. And now it's just a little bit more like, yeah, I've got to, you got to see things, through different lens. And the other thing is I've seen, you know, guys that, that I consider mentors of mine. um, Some of the guys down in Andrews, some of the guys at uh, UW and Madison, and you see them when, when I was training with them, they're kind of where I am now. And now I see them and I see the, the, the balance that they have generated for themselves. And you say that that's gotta be the goal. You gotta, you gotta get somewhere with that so that you can, you know, you can take a step back and, and you, you can't just, you know, drive your way through a wall every time. Eventually you gotta, you gotta know that you need some help from other people. Um, and sometimes you don't know the answer and it's okay to not know the answer. I think the, I think one of the things that I see, uh, from time to time, uh, with, uh, with coaches is you get on, I mean, you and I have joked from time to time, you get on social media, uh, and it's the same thing in the med side, but you get on, uh, coaching stuff and, and what happens is these guys, you know, it's this way is the right way. He should be, uh, you know, extending out his arms and finishing super high because we know that launch angle generates this. Um, and another guy is basically saying, uh, no, 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 you got to lead with the knob of the bat. Uh, it's Tony Gwynn. We always need the ball in play. And there's no, there, sometimes there's no room. It's just like, this is the way. Um, and in the reality is if you watch kid, if, if I see, uh, if you have a big, you know, six, three high school kid, if you're having him try to hit like Tony Gwynn, you're probably not a very good coach. So maybe he needs to have a little bit more launch angle. If you've got a, if you got a, a little guy that's quick, if you're trying to teach him launch angle, get ready for a ton of fly balls to the mid portion of the outfield. Because he can't generate the force. Same thing happens in pitching. You know, it's same thing happens in in orthopedics where it's like there's there becomes you're making dogma me feel like, better
0: now because I just yeah. I think it's across all professions.
1: It absolutely is. It's there's dogma that you know you, you never do this. There was a one of the godfathers of orthopedic sports medicine in the 70s and 80s would say ACL is not important. It doesn't matter. You shouldn't do anything with it. This is not a problem. Um, you do the, the surgery, that was, was kind of at the advent of, of, of the ACL surgery as it was getting pioneered. And, th- and this particular surgeon went to every meeting he could possibly go to and, you know, you know, metaphorically would pound the fist on the podium and say, this ain't it, you're doing it wrong. We gotta manage it like this. And you come to find out, ooh, that's clearly not the case, right? Um, we have better, better answers now. And so I think that, you know, if you're, if you're dogmatically saying something, you probably need to every once in a while, take a step back and look at it and say, am I sure that this is the correct way? And that's part of what the UCL repair stuff that has come out became. It, it, it became kind of this thing where, uh, reconstruction was you had you got reconstruction and we actually had a period of time where they they <coughs> excuse me they would do surveys where guys literally thought if i'm a if i'm a college guy if i'm minor, a minor league guy and i'm topping out on my my velocity i just need to blow up my UCL i need to have uh, reconstruction um, and that's the answer then i have UCL i'll pick up 4 or 5 miles an hour and then i get a look uh, and that's a true, that's a myth. I mean, that's clearly been debunked. Um, but you know, so that became like, uh, Hey, why do you repair- feel like
0: guys are throwing harder now? I mean, you're in the forefront of all of this. Why do you feel like the averages <coughs> are, are ticking up?
1: Well, I think there's, I think there's two things. I think the training is far different. So, so, you know, uh, even when I was assistant coach in high school, the kids that threw hard, you'd see them coming down the hill wearing jean shorts and a tank top. And then they'd throw the, the practice uni on. And, you know, I mean, it wasn't exactly like Kelly leak coming off with a sig in his mouth, but there was times where you're like, have you, you haven't even, you haven't lifted in weeks, like, and and they still throw hard. But if you take a kid like that and you get him in a program where he's lifting more and he's doing more physical conditioning he's just going to just, I mean, there's no doubt by nature of that, he's going to throw harder. Um, some of it is biomechanics, right? Some of it is, you know, uh, guys like, uh, Kyle Bodie and guys through like line. those guys are developing programs that are, are trying to safely get kids to throw harder, to get more velocity. Um, and I think that there's, there's some good stuff with that. Um, but I think it's probably a combination of the, of the two that makes the biggest difference.
0: There's probably also
1: to some degree. I mean, I mean, this is completely anecdotal, but I I feel like I'm seeing kids just bigger. Like they just seem to be bigger.
0: I think that's the training Um, piece too. I think kids are are training earlier. Um, They're in the weight room earlier. The the D cell work for me, that's, you know, they say it. If you, if you develop stronger breaks, then it can the arm can go faster, and that's where we're at. We're, we're developing stronger breaks with the D cells now, where they can go faster with their arm without getting hurt. Hey, what are what do nutrition, sleep, and hydration play in injury prevention?
1: Uh, it, it's the I would say it's not the uh, it's not the final frontier for us, but it's definitely the the next it's the next thing. I mean, um, I agree. When we, when we care for athletes or, you know, weekend warriors as well, um, you can do, you can have situations where, uh, an individual has the perfect indication for something, um, UCL tear, right. Um, you do the surgery in a fashion that you think, whether it's reconstruction repair, you do the surgery in a fashion that you walk out of there, you know, fist bump for everybody in the room. We're feeling good. Everything went off without a hitch. Technically, it was exactly the way it's supposed to be done. That that athlete does exactly what they're supposed to do from a rehab standpoint, and they're checking those boxes, and it still somehow goes a little sideways. And those are the those are the situations that keep you up at night. Um, we joke in the in the orthopedic world, you know, the 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 the, the early the thing that uh, messes up a great surgery is follow up, right? If you follow up enough people, some people don't do as well. And those are the ones that you, you you lay awake and rack your brain on. And, and you go back and you look, okay, you go back through the therapy notes. Good. They're with a good therapist that you trust. They're following a protocol. Um, all of that's looking good. Um, what is it? And there are, I, I believe that there are these, uh, kind of these gray areas that make a difference, right? Um, So, uh, you mentioned sleep. Um, you know, if you are, if you're going into your rehab and you're half zonked because you're not sleeping well, right. That's a problem. We see it a lot for like shoulder surgeries. Those, those individuals struggle mightily to sleep after surgery like that. And it affects the way they handle their rehab. Because if you are, if you're run down, what are you getting out of your rehab? So Sleep is a big one. And, and, and young people, you know, high school, college, sleep patterns for those guys. I mean, my son asked me the other day, what was my routine in college? And my routine in college was I studied up, you know, I stayed up, studied till midnight or hung out with my buddies till midnight in our dorm and common room, whatever. And then I would get up at, you know, scratch my eyeballs at eight o'clock, uh, grab a Pop-Tart and run to class. And then- repeat plan a um and that happens now i mean kids you know kids they're just up a lot you know and in college it's hard it's hard to to wind down you know you got a lot going on college athletes you may have a very irregular schedule you may have practice you may have group meetings you may have a test first thing your lifting may be different um
0: players would look at me nuts i'm like okay let's lay out your schedule for the week the earliest that you have to get up set the rest of your, your week at the earliest you have to get up and try to go to bed and wake up at the same time at the earliest you have to get up. And I know it's hard, but if you want to stay healthy, if you want to stay on top of the type of schedule that we're, we're expecting you to, to stay on top of and you want to stay healthy, this is the only way that I know to, to try to keep you close because I've seen the guys that ride the ups and downs and they're, they're the ones that get hurt more than anybody else because they're not fully recovered.
1: Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and if you look at it, uh, English Premier League, there's a couple guys that are really, really, really into sleep, sleep preservation, uh, <laughs> you know, even down to sleep temp, um, isolation, things like that. Um, so sleep is a big one. Um, I've, I've been, I ask people more that now than I ever have, um, through all walks of life, uh, not just, not just athletes. Um, because I try to get a feel for that. Um, it, nutrition is is another big, big one. As you know, high school guys, college guys, um, it, it can vary. And it, it varies a lot based off of a person's socioeconomic situation, right? You can have a scenario where you've got a family that is like, um, you know, we go through Trader Joe's and we get all of these things that, you know, that uh, this, this, and this. And Uh, and mom or dad is really into this. And so they're just zeroed in on everything. And then you can have another kid who's like, I get, I get lunch at school. um, And then, you know, I share dinner with, you know, my eight siblings. And it's just not as, it's not as, as prevalent for them to be able to get full nutrition. So that's something where you talk about like, Food programs in schools uh, make a big difference. I think training table stuff, particularly at the collegiate level, getting that back, you know, and and getting that going. So that's coming for these guys. Obviously, that's really important. But it really is, you know, uh, talking to kids, you know, it's it's a little bit easier for coaches, you know, as you get to know kids, you know, at whatever level you're at to be like, hey, what do you what's your what's your nutrition the day before and the day of pitching? What are you eating? You know are you going to Burger King? Um, are you are you going to subway? Or are you getting are you bringing a sandwich from home and a granola bar and and a couple apples and and, and getting hydration? You know that's another one that's that's probably, you know uh, talked about a lot in some regards, but probably not talked about enough in other ways, right? Um, that's that's really important. and and nowadays, there's there's a lot of us that like vitamin D deficiencies, vitamin C deficiencies, things of that nature, anybody that's got, um, you know, uh, precursor to diabetes, things like that. Just trying to stay on top of those things is, uh, really important. So we try to, we try to do a better job of outlining that, particularly in athletes, cause it makes a difference. The last thing, honestly, um, I, I will tell you that, and this is something that I watched when I, I was down with Dr. Andrews. Um, and I, I knew it and I saw it. Um, and I saw the value of it, but you know, the farther along you get in practice, you realize that so much of what we do—and um, I, I certainly don't mean do this to demean my uh, psychiatry or psychology colleagues—but there's a lot of times where you feel like you're you're doing mental health checks on people, right? You do a surgery, and the person comes in, and they haven't—they're not sleeping well. Um, you know, they just look like they're kind of a zombie. You got you're talking about that. What's, uh, you know, this doesn't make any sense. Why are you struggling so much? Your, your knee or your elbow, or your shoulder looks good. Why do you, why do you perceive it to be, um, why do you perceive yourself to be behind? Um, that's psycho cybernetics.
0: I mean, that book yep, is out there, psycho cybernetics, but, um, for anybody that hasn't read it, I don't know if you should dive into it or not, but it was with a plastic surgeon and it was on, People's mentality. And if they had a good mentality going into the, the plastic surgery, they would think that they looked great. But if somebody didn't have a great self image, it could have been the best plastic surgery in the world and they would have thought they were still ugly. Like the, that book is phenomenal. Augie Garrido is a big fan of psycho cybernetics.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, a, it plays, that, that kind of plays a huge role. And we, we, we try to even outline beforehand if we're going into a surgery, we're going into it because we believe that it's going to help. We're not, we're not just throwing stuff at a wall and seeing what sticks. But I, I think that that's a, you know, that's a situation where when you're, when you're talking to people, what's your perception of this? Well, I, I think I'm behind. Why do you think you're behind? Oh, because my teammate had a similar surgery and he he was doing this, or I have a buddy that pitches at Georgia tech and, and he was, he, he recovered from it uh, quicker and, or he didn't have to have surgery. Why, you know, there's all sorts of things, you know, and it can also be like, what's the situation like at home? What, you know, um, how's school going? Are are you struggling in school? Uh, Um, you know, it's, it's tough, you know, it's not something that anybody really likes to ask sometimes, but like, is there a, is, and it's, and it's probably a little bit, you got to be careful of it without crying too much, but in discussion about social stuff, these kids are also, you know, high school, college kids, they're also going through life development where they're talking about your, there's girlfriends, there's boyfriends. They're trying to navigate that uh, that social life um, and be an athlete. And, and it, it, it plays a role. It really, really does. And, um, and I think sometimes, you know, the, the thing that impacts that a lot is having a good trainer wherever you're at, whether it's high school, college, pros. You know, those guys are – without a doubt, you know, like amateur psychologists to a degree, because they're the ones that they interact with the most. How's your day going? You know, what's going on? Um, and as a surgeon, we have to, we lean on them heavy. You know, I, the, the different places, the schools I take care of. I mean, whenever I see a kid, that's one of the first calls I make is, how are they doing? What, I mean, are they seem happy. Are they coming in for therapy? Are they doing stuff that they should be doing? Uh, and you can sometimes glean a lot out of that alone.
0: Do you have a fail-forward moment? I mean, I, it seems like you've checked every box along the way and done everything that you've wanted to do, but do you have a fail-forward moment, something that you thought was going to set you back, but 12 months down the road you, you thought it ended up being a good thing?
1: Oh, I mean, my wife and I joke all the time that we uh, <laughs> we have all sorts of moments where um, at the time you think it's, uh, you think it's uh, the end of the world, Um, when I was an undergrad, um, when this is the story I don't tell very often, um, but when I was an undergrad, um, you know, I was thought that I was very competitive for medical school, um, and, uh, was sure of a, of a place that I wanted to go. Um, and when you're that age, you, you have so much, um, when you're sure of something, you're sure of it, right. When you're that age, when you're 21 years old, it's like, well, duh, I mean, the, the obvious pathway is this, you know? Um, And when I was in undergrad, I was like, well, I'm just, I'm going to end up at this medical school, like, you know, fill it out. This is going to be a good summer. I'm going to enter next year. It's going to be great. Um, And all, all my stuff was competitive and I got into uh, a few other medical schools that were, that were were very good and, and uh, very nice to see, um, but didn't get into the medical school I wanted. And I mean, I wouldn't call it a tantrum but uh it was a i mean it was it was hard to see um and, and you know that's a situation where like they screwed up this is on them uh this is a problem uh, you know and i i, I kind of knew that that was where i wanted to go and and well i said well, i'll sit out a year and do this and my wife is a, a year behind me at the time I was going was going to go to medical school and uh, and I ended up deciding that I was going to take a year and, and we were going to enter together and just make it so we we're on, on, on path. Um, and went through the whole process again, you know, up to everything, CV even, even more full. And it still didn't work out at the medical school that I wanted. Um, and, and I remember just being like staring at the, you know, the letter and, you know, disbelief and uh, you know, Heartbroken is probably a little bit uh, dramatic, particularly given what other people go through and, and what that scenario is. But it was definitely one of those things where um, you, you eventually have to take that, took that in stride, uh, went to Indiana Medical School, and I wouldn't have traded that for the world. I mean, I, my experience
0: there was... It worked out the way it was supposed to work out, didn't it? Phenomenal.
1: And, yeah. And, and and I think that, you know, that's, that's happened a couple of times um, in, in, my pathway, um, in terms of jobs and, and just different, 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 uh, experiences, uh, and in getting to know people, you, you know, you, you look back and you think about, well, how did I, how did I enter, get to know that person? Uh, are like, oh shoot, it's because of this. I was going to, I was going to do this and that didn't work out and it ended up being this. And so, you know, things, things truly, it's so cliche, things work out for a reason. Um, but when you're in the moment, it's tough, but it's true that you have to kind of like, you just kind of have to say, well, that's the, that's the pathway it's going to be. And you make the best of it and you try to optimize as, as much as you can.
0: Well, this is why you have friends outside of your professional arena. And it was dumb luck that you and I met, um, you know, through Andy Gann, it's a great friendship, but I would ask you about medical sales sometimes and you'd be like, Ryan, there's gonna be a beautiful spring day. You're going to look outside and you'll be like, why am I in this operating room? I should be out on a baseball field somewhere. So I always appreciated our talks that we would have outside the baseball arena. Phenomenal. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's plenty of us that, uh, you know, look outside and, and long for that. And then if you have a day where it's nothing's going on, sometimes you wish you were in the OR. So, uh, I get the sense of that. And, um, and and certainly I appreciate our friendship. Uh, as you said, we've known each other for probably going on a decade now.
0: It all runs together now. What are some final thoughts you have or some things that we missed, maybe some resources for, for parents or players listening in, um, to kind of tie the loose ends here.
1: I think the, I think the biggest thing for me is, you know, there's, there's stuff online, particularly as it relates to pitch count stuff. So if you're a youth coach, um, you know, you can look it up. I mean, Google uh Dr. Andrews' pitch count. I mean, it's he, he's been remarkably consistent with that over the years. Um, other stuff that I think is important know how to throw a fastball first, right? Know how to throw a fastball first, then a change up, and then under good direction, learn a breaking pitch, whether it's a, a curveball or if you're farther on, if you're into high school. Um, and you've got a good coach that can teach you something different depending on your skill level. Uh, but learn to locate a fastball, change up. Um, and, and then the last thing is, you know, it's it's ubiquitous. Um, a lot of discussions out there on sports, but do other things. That, like you know, whether it's sports or you know, go out for the school play, go out for the school musical. Do do different things, like you said. Learn guitar. Get something that that rounds you out as a person. So you've got something that you can do differently um, both from a physical health standpoint, but from a mental health standpoint, because if you're a, if you're a baseball only guy and you're in the midst of a struggle, you got, you got no outlet. So you got to have something different. So I think that that's really important. Um, And then the last thing is rest. Um, If a doc, a coach, trainer, therapist, says you need some rest probably need some rest you, you gotta you gotta be willing to take that step back and say okay i'm gonna give it a break and what doesn't mean i'm done but we'll come revisit it when it's necessary um and i think that that's pretty valuable as well so
0: whitey i appreciate it it's uh always a pleasure i always love our talks so thank you so much yeah
1: anytime thanks coach b have a good one bud
0: thanks to dr white for jumping on with me Dealing with players having arm issues was always a challenge as a coach. He helped me so much, and his diagnosis was always spot on. I hope that you don't have to deal with arm issues, but looking at the trends, it will probably affect you at some point. Thanks again to John Litchfield, Zach Hale, and Matt West, and the ABCA office for all their help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownly at abca.org, Twitter, coachb underscore ABCA, Instagram, ryanbrownley 17 or direct message me via the MyABCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.